How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed for I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping to devour. They all come intent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. They mock kings and scoff at rulers. They laugh at all fortified cities. By building earthen ramps, they capture them. Then they sweep past like the wind and go on, guilty people whose own strength is their God. Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you will never die. You, Lord, have appointed them to judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? This is God's word. You can be seated. Beautiful. <laughs> Thanks, Lauren. That was beautiful. Um, good morning, everybody. Great to see everybody. Thank you, Lord, for this beautiful day. The sun does shine in Michigan. <laughs> yeah. I know. Surprise you're here today. It's good to see everybody. One thing before we uh, get into this. Um, summer is approaching. And Labor Day, and, or Memorial Day, Labor Day kind of bookends. So get ready to get excited here, you guys, all right? Uh, we're going to do um, what we did last year, tailgate church picnics on both those days. Come on now, all right? Um, some of you feel like that's not church. Well, you're at a church where we think that's more church sometimes than this. Um, that is important. We are not a stage audience. We are a people. And as a people, we need to know each other so we can love each other, so we can weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. So if you're in town, uh, make that a priority, okay? Uh, also, this doesn't apply to you, but starting that weekend, Memorial Day going to Labor Day, uh, we will not have Saturday night services as well. We take that off during the summer, so... Okay, we are in the Minor Prophets, not minor, uh, don't know why they're called Minor Prophets, I think it's just because they're smaller, uh, but they play a major, major role in the biblical story in God's word. One of the things that my mom always said to me, because I was, I was 
the smallest kid in my class or one of the smallest, and she'd always tell me, she'd say, now, honey, <laughs> she called me honey. She still calls me honey. Um, honey, it's not the size of the dog in the fight, but the fight in the dog. I like that. Um, does that make sense to you or not? All right, well, that's the minor prophets. I mean, these guys have bite, and it's bite that we need. We need, we need to hear it. Habakkuk is who we're looking at today, and Habakkuk is different than all the other prophets because instead of speaking on behalf of God to the people, this thus saith the Lord, Habakkuk actually acts more like a priest and speaks on behalf of the people to God. And in this book, it's my opinion that he provides maybe one of the most beautiful expressions of what authentic faith looks like, especially in the face of suffering and loss. First, a bit of background. We've looked at this Assyrian Empire that has taken over much of the world and how it's come in, it's taken out Israel, the northern kingdom. They are no more, like Micah prophesied. They are rubble. Judah, the southern kingdom, is still holding on. By the way, the word Jew today uh, comes from the word Judah. It's the slang. A Jew is a Judahite. So not all of Israel is Jewish, but Jewish, Judah, is Israel. Does that make sense? If not, just keep thinking about it. Um, but Judah, the southern kingdom, at the time of Habakkuk, it's, it's still recovering because the Assyrians also came in, raped and pillaged their land. All but Jerusalem was spared. And now Judah is this weakened vassal state paying enormous amounts of money to Assyria. It's also led by probably its most wicked king in its history, a guy by the name of Manasseh. And this is what it says about Manasseh in 2 Kings 21. I think I have some PowerPoint. Okay, I'll describe this guy. Um, you can read about it in 2 Kings 21. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. He ruled for 55 years in Jerusalem. He reintroduced all the moral rot and spiritual corruption that had been scoured from the country when God dispossessed the pagan nations. He rebuilt all the sects and religious shrines that his father Hezekiah, think about that, his dad is, is Hezekiah, um, Hezekiah had torn down, and he built altars and phallic images for the sex god, Baal and sex goddess Asherah, and that was literally placed right in the temple of God itself. He burned his own son in a sacrificial offering. He practiced black magic, fortune-telling, held seances, consulted spirits from the underworld. Manasseh lets God's people off the beat path into practices of evil even exceeding the evil of the pagan nations that God had earlier destroyed. This is Judas king. As a leader goes, so go a people. As a king goes, so goes a nation. And 
this people, Judah, God's people, have become just as rotten as its king. And one of the words that I think you saw was, was, was said in the text that was read is, as, as, as Habakkuk is looking at his people, his nation, he says, violence. It's all violence. In Hebrew, it's the word Hamas. Hamas is more than just oppression. It's this brutal Violent oppression. And Habakkuk says, it's everywhere, causing him, rather than to preach a sermon to the people, he cries out to God and he says, God, how long? How long? In fact, in verses two to four, he, he essentially asks God three questions that I think we all want to ask God at some point in time. God, are you there? God, do you care? And God, are you fair? And don't think he's asking these questions like a national public radio talk show host. Mm -mm. There's pathos. There's angst. There's confusion. There's anger. There's hurt. There's frustration. There's shouting. There's crying out to God. God, where are you? How can you allow this? Why aren't you doing something about it? Have you been there? Have you ever looked at the world or maybe even just a small piece of the world where it's caused you to ask things like this? Shout it. Cry it out. Feel it. The pathos of it. Of course you have. Can't avoid it everywhere. Hamas is everywhere. And as Christ followers, guess what? We're actually called to follow Christ into places of Hamas. Injustice, wickedness. And if you even put your toes in the water a little bit, I think we can all then relate to Habakkuk here. Bless God for this book. I mentor uh, some sixth graders. Been doing that um, for a while. And man, the last couple of times I've gone in there, I've just left so frustrated. It's a little bit like Habakkuk here. Um, <laughs> you know these cell phones today? I think we're gonna look back at them 10, 20 years from now, maybe like we look back on cigarettes today and say, can you believe it? Can you believe what we put in the hands of our kids? I know I sound old right now. I, I, <laughs> I couldn't literally have their attention for 10 seconds. Put your cell phone down. Please, put your cell phone down. Put your cell phones down. I think it stopped there. I don't think I got any louder than that. It's basically what the whole hour consisted of. And so God and I had it out in the car. <laughs> this is where Habakkuk is. And sometimes that little piece of the world that causes us to ask these questions is our own life. 
how long, God? Why are you allowing this? And I know some of you are even in that place right now. And so God comes to Habakkuk and he responds to his lament in verses 5 to 11. He starts it off uh, with this dramatic statement, I'm going to do something that you're not even going to believe if I told it to you. And then he goes on to say something that I think was quite shocking to Habakkuk. He, he pretty much tells him a new world power is going to rise from the east, Babylon. Babylon at this point was a small little country. No one could imagine them becoming a superpower at this time. But God goes on to describe what Babylon's going to do. They're going to come. They're going to terrorize. They're going to destroy. They're going to make a mockery of proud kings and rulers, proud nations and cities. Verse 9, God says, and they are going to unleash a Hamas a violence that is yet to be seen. And this will include Judah. In other words, God is saying, yes, Habakkuk, I am here and I do care and I am fair. What a nation sows, also shall it reap. As you do to others, it will be done to you. You sow Hamas, you're gonna reap Hamas. You do Hamas to others, and Hamas is going to be done to you as well. That's God's answer. Would that sit well with you? Hey, God, sounds great. Bring it on. If Habakkuk is confused at the beginning of chapter 1, he is now losing his mind with confusion. This is outrageous that God would use Babylon. And you see this in verse 13. It's like he's saying to God, God, did I I hear you right? That that you're going to use a nation that's far more wicked to just swallow up a nation? Yes, that's not doing so well, but it's far more righteous than that wicked nation. Really, God? And then 2 verse 1, Habakkuk says, you know, I'll sit in my living room and just wait for an answer from you. I've found many Christians that are uncomfortable with how Habakkuk questions God here. Not just questioning God, he's challenging God. So many of us find this to be disrespectful. Even more, we think, man, this shows a lack of faith. Question God like this? I'm not sure where this comes from, especially when it's all over the Bible from cover to cover. All the spiritual greats question, challenge God. Moses challenged God. Exodus 5, verse 22. Moses returned to the Lord and he said, Why, Lord? Why have you brought trouble on this people, referring to his people? Is this why you sent me? Do you know, God, that ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, that he has brought trouble on this people, and you have not rescued your people at all? Really, God? This isn't the only time Moses is going to question God, challenge him. He's going to say things to God like, God, how dare you do that? David, all over the Psalms, 
Psalm 13, one to three, he says, how long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts? And day after day have sorrow in my heart. How long? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me, answer me, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I'm gonna sleep in death. Psalm 42, verse nine, I say to my God, my rock. It's like setting it off. This is what I think about you, God, but why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning all day long? Why must I always be oppressed by my enemy? Psalm 22, the psalm that Jesus quoted from uh, the cross is actually a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out to you day after day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. Job. Job. I don't know if anyone suffered more than Job, at least in the scriptures, other than Christ. And yet you have those statements about Job where God takes it all away from him, just throws tragedy upon him, tragedy after tragedy. And we run to those verses where it says, in all this, Job did not sin because he said the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be your name. But if you read the rest of Job, a lot of it is like Job 13, where he says to God, God, listen carefully to what I am about to say. Let my words literally ring in your ears. I know I will be vindicated. Can anyone bring charges against me? If so, I will be silent and then I will die. But only grant me these two things, God, and then I will not hide from you anymore. Withdraw your hand far from me and stop frightening me with your tears. Abraham, in Genesis 18, when Abraham finds out what God is gonna do to Sodom and Gomorrah, how he's gonna destroy it, basically looks up at God and says, you are a righteous God, how dare you do that? And see, I think some of, the, some of the reason why we're uncomfortable with questioning God or even challenging God is maybe because we have the wrong belief about belief. At least in my tradition, I, I grew up being taught that, that belief or faith was about having the right answers. It was about having right theology. And I'm not here to say that having convictions, deep convictions about who God is and what God is doing in our world and, and, and God's word doesn't have anything to do with faith. I mean, convictions are the bedrock of faith, but faith is so much more than just having right answers or propositions that we put in our brain. Faith is childlike trust. And that's why if it's that, questioning God and challenging God actually shows God, that we do believe in him, that, that we believe he's actually real, that we, that, that we actually believe he can do what he says he can do. And so it honors God. It doesn't dishonor him. Because when it gets right down to it, God isn't a boss. He's our father. He loves us. We're his very sons and daughters. 
And he doesn't want just a bunch of robots that just perform for him. He wants our raw hearts. And, and our raw hearts are going to include questions. They're going to include doubts, fears, frustrations. And I don't know about you, but every meaningful relationship I, I'm in, there's lots of wrestle. Tons of it. Why do you think God calls his people Israel? Which means wrestles with God. He wants relationship. A real relationship, and real relationship is going to involve wrestle. Libby and I celebrated our wedding anniversary this week. Actually, we haven't celebrated it yet, but we, yeah. <laughs> um, we're 27 years, yep. <laughs> she's my lover, she's my best friend, she's my soulmate. I'm the first to know that I couldn't do anything in my calling, being a father, a husband, a pastor, without her unbelievable help. And she is, she's the wind in my sails. I just, I mean that with, with every fiber of my being. She questions me a lot. <laughs> <laughs> She challenges me often. There's a lot of wrestle. My family, there's a lot of wrestle. Sometimes I think, man, I'm just so glad that there's four walls right now that allow for people to not see what's going on inside this house right now. <laughs> um, some of you probably wouldn't be here right now if you could see. Um, but if I could see in your life, I don't know if I'd be here either, so. <laughs> I look at our family, and honestly, the most intimate moments have come out of wrestle, intense wrestle. But the intimacy that we have in our family, it's been forged out of the fact that we wrestle a lot. Going back to those spiritual greats, not only were they comfortable wrestling with God, but they also had tons of humility. They weren't standing toe-to-toe -to -toe with God like they were right and God was wrong as these intellectual elites that had it all figured out. I mean, Job and, and Abraham are the only two people to, to say to God, God, I am nothing but dust and ashes. The text says of Moses, he was the humblest man of his times. David, too, you can see it in the Psalms, he was humble. Because it actually takes a lot of humility to question God, because when we do it, we're actually admitting to him, God, I'm confused, I'm weak. I don't have this all figured out, I need help. Listen to Job in Job 23, 8 to 10. I have this on PowerPoint. I want you to see it. He says, but if I go to the east, he's not there. If I go to the west, I do not find him. When he is at work in the north, I do not see him. When he turns to the south, I still can't see him. But he sees the way that I take, and when he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. You know what Job's saying? This is what suffering does. When we suffer, it's the fight to see. When we suffer, it's like everything's cloudy and 
dark and chaotic. And Job's saying, I can't see. But God, I know you can. And I know when you get me through this, as I follow you, I will come forth as gold. Abraham says the same thing in, in, in Genesis 22 when God asked him to do the hardest thing a father would, would ever be asked to do, to literally offer up his own son. And it's a three-day journey to, to the place where he is to do this. And when they're about halfway there, that, that haunting question comes from his son. It's like, Dad, we have everything for the sacrifice, but where's the lamb? And Abraham in this moment, it's like he can't see it's too much for him. But all he can say to his son is, son, God will see to it. God will see to it. And here's the most amazing thing when you read these stories really closely in the Bible of, of, of the spiritual greats wrestling with God. You see that every time they wrestle with God, they always came away with more of God. <laughs> more of his presence more of his truth, more of God in their lives. You know the last words Job says in the book of Job? Essentially, when my life was good, he says, my ears, my ears heard about you, God. But after this ordeal, now my eyes, they've seen you. I know you. And I think the reason why, 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 why some of you never hear God or sense his presence is because you simply perform for God and there's no wrestle. You, you know about God. You have all the right answers of, of who God is, but you still haven't trusted him with your life. There's no relationship. This whole thing is not about being right about relationship. Now, chapter two, God comes and answers Habakkuk's second complaint. <laughs> Why the Babylonians? Are you kidding, God? God pretty much in chapter two lets him know, look, dude, I know what I'm doing, and, and you need to be assured that in my time, I'm gonna deal ruthlessly with the Babylonians too, but for now, they're gonna be my vehicle of justice. Now, why is chapter two important? Well, Babylon really runs throughout the entire Bible. Uh, in Genesis, uh, you have Babel, and in Revelation, you have Babylon, and it's all the way through. And in Hebrew, Babel, Babylon are the same word. Because in the Bible, Babylon is more than just a historical reality. Babylon actually symbolizes the anti-kingdom, the spiritual powers and the principalities of this dark world that manifest themselves in this world system that stands itself against God, against Christ, and against his people. That's Babylon. Babylon is alive and well today. Babylon, I would argue, dominates our world and it's gonna do so until Christ comes again and fulfills what's hinted here in chapter two that gets more clarity in the book of Revelation. But in chapter two, God pronounces five woe statements against Babylon. 
And really through these woe statements, not only is he talking about Babylon's end, but he's also deconstructing Babylon. He's, he's cracking Babylon open so we can know what Babylon is. Because we live in Babylon. Still a force that dominates. First woe, verses six to eight, my paraphrase, woe to him who amasses wealth at someone else's expense. That's Babylon. Everybody climbing up the ladder to get as high as they can and trampling on whoever to get there. In fact, the word woe here doesn't really capture the true meaning. Doom gets a lot closer. Damnation's still closer. Second woe, verses 9 to 11. Woe to him who makes wealth dishonestly. Look at everybody pursuing wealth today and all the dishonest means that's taking place to get it. Third woe, verses 12 to 13. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed. Again, people who are building things, making things, creating things, always at someone else's expense. Someone has to suffer. Fourth woe, verses 15 and 16. Woe to him who gets his neighbor drunk for the purpose of nakedness. Nakedness there is not just sex, but it's the shame that results from the sex. It's Babylon. Fifth woe, verses 18 and 19. Woe to him who seeks life and meaning and significance from a worthless idol. This is Babylon. It's this anti-kingdom, this world system that's defined by money, sex, and power. Money, sex, and power just oozes out of the pores of Babylon. It's what Babylon uses to, to seduce us so that we sell our souls and worship ourselves instead of God. You want to know what's at the root of Babylon? Verse 4, we see hints of it. See, the enemy, this Babylon, is puffed up. What does puffed up mean? It's in verse 5. He is arrogant and never at rest. Pride. If the five woes are the fruit, or money, sex, and power, the fruit, the root of Babylon is pride. Remember when Babylon first shows up in the story, let's build a city with a tower that reaches the heavens to make a name for ourselves. That's what pride is. It's living to make a name for ourselves. It's this obsession with self, self-importance, self this, self that. In fact, there's a reason why this chapter begins with pride and ends with idols because that's what pride produces in our lives, idols. An idol is anything we set our heart on apart from God to give us a name. That's what Babylon promises to do, give us a name, an identity, worth, satisfaction, joy, meaning. Here's the deal. Whether you know this or not, our hearts weren't made for Babylon. Our hearts were made for God. And at the end of the day, only God can name us. Only God can truly satisfy us. Only God can give us true worth. Money, sex, power will never satisfy 
hearts made for God. Which is why in verse five, you not only have pride, but accompany that word is restlessness because pride and restlessness always go hand in hand. Look at our country. We've never had so much. We've never had it so good. We've never been so restless, so empty. David said, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My body longs for you. My soul thirsts for you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water. David, he was, he was going for one thing. That was God. Paul said, I want to know Christ. You want me to sum my life up? He says, for me to live is Christ. Jesus said, stop all this fuss, all this worry about the world. That's the stuff of Babylon. The pagans obsess over these things. But you are to seek first me and my kingdom. Your life isn't defined by all that other stuff. It's defined by a father, my father who loves you and delights in you. Since we live in Babylon right now, let me just ask you a few questions. Where are you with Babylon? How obsessed are you right now with you? Wow, that's slavery. That's slavery, to be obsessed with ourselves. Or we're obsessed with making a name for ourselves. We're obsessed with our importance. How consumed are you with money? How much of your life is consumed with thinking about it or how you're going to get it? Does money define you? How about sex? Are you living in Babylon? Are you stewarding this area of your life for the glory of God? What about power? Do you love to have control? Do you love to exert control over other people? Do you live to have control? Now, I'll admit, when I, when I look at our world, I mean, we live in a world where it looks like Babylon is the greater, where it seems like Christ and his kingdom is the lesser, that Babylon is in complete control of everything. But in chapter two, God makes two amazing statements and these seeds of truth need to be planted in our hearts and allowed to grow so that we don't just look at our world but we're able to see through our world to a profound and glorious reality of what is and what will be. First, verse 14 of what will be. God just puts this in or he says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's what will be. Not the glory of Babylon filling the earth, but the glory of God one day is going to fill the earth, cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. 
second seed we need to put in our hearts is verse 20. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let the earth be silent before him. I want us to hear what, he, what, what, what God is saying here. He's saying as bad as things might become, I am still in control. I am still sovereign. I still sit on the throne. I haven't left the building. I haven't abandoned you. I haven't abandoned a world that I love. So as wicked or as chaotic as, as life may seem, God still says, I got this. And here's the thing. He's gonna do things in his time, not our time. He's gonna do things his way, not our way. Think about Jacob. I mean, Jacob made such a mess of his life, so much so that he had to literally run away. He, he, he lied to his father. He betrayed his brother. His brother literally wants to kill him, so he has to live far away from home. He'll never see his mother again, his father again. He loses his inheritance. But God slowly starts to rebuild his life in this faraway place, and he meets a woman. And through this woman, one day, will come to Christ. God's in control. What about Joseph? This arrogant, conceited kid whose 11 brothers hate him so much, they sell him off as a slave. He, he lands in Egypt where for the next 14 years of his life, his life just goes down into pits and into pre prisons and it seems like everything is lost, but God is orchestrating everything. I mean, God is moving heaven and earth for Joseph. All the evil that was done against Joseph, God is actually orchestrating it for great good. Joseph says it at the end of his life. And not just for Joseph, but for Joseph's family and for, for the entire biblical story. And I'm telling you, these stories are everywhere in the Bible. It's what the whole story is about which is right now we can be confident in Romans 8, 28, where God says he is working out everything for our good. You know what everything means? It means everything. It means everything that's happening in the world, all the wick wickedness that we see. It means even your sinful choices, the tragedies, he's working it all out for good. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let the whole earth be silent before him. If you want to know how we're to live, God says in verse 4, the righteous will live by faith. That's how we are to live in this world. Faith? What's faith? Again, faith in my tradition was, was a belief in a set of propositions, but that's not what biblical faith is. The Hebrew word here is emunah. Emunah means faithfulness. Better yet, if you want to get to the literal meaning of what emunah means, faith here, it means utter loyalty. Loyalty. The righteous irrespective of any circumstance or any current event or even a whole world that deserts God will still live in utter 
loyalty to him. Remember what God just told Habakkuk. Babylon's coming. And they're coming for war. And this is frightening for Habakkuk. I mean, a national tragedy awaits. Hamas is going to be unleashed. Look at what he says in in verse 3, verse 16. I have this on PowerPoint. He says, I heard and my heart pounded, my lips quivered at the sound, decay crept in my bones, and my legs trembled, yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation that's invading us. He's petrified, he's horrified. Listen, faith is not the absence of fear. Faith is not the absence of doubt. You wanna know what faith is? It's the end of this book. Because this book ends with what I think is the most profound expression of faith, maybe in the entire Bible. And it's a song. Because after the verse that I just put there is this Hebrew word selah. Selah is a musical term that means a pause. Because now we're going to sing. And the reason why faith is a song is because it's not just a proposition that we put in our brains. It's a song that we sing with our hearts and our lives. Faith is this song. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord my Savior. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer, and he enables me to tread on the And then he gives instruction for the director of music. Can you say that today? Can your heart sing that? Though I lose everything, though my life becomes totally bankrupt, I mean, it's Job's statement, though the Lord slay me, still I will praise him. And all the confusion, all the fear, the pain, the depression, when precious things of life are taken away, can you say, even still, I will sing, I'll rejoice in God my Savior? Honestly, who says that? When evil times come, when disaster and tragedy hit, I see so many people who just get cynical They get angry, they blame others, they sometimes even blame God, they lose all hope. I'll tell you the people who can sing that song, it's the last verse. It's people who can say, the Lord is my strength. It's not my worldly possessions, it's not my career, it's not my boyfriend, it's not my girlfriend, it's not even my spouse, it's not my health, it's not my wealth. The Lord is my strength. The Lord is my precious. The Lord is my savior. It's not the life that I've made for myself. It's not my reputation or lack thereof. It's not my goodness. It's all him. It's his goodness, his righteousness, his life. 
Those are the ones who can sing that even when they lose so much. Righteous will live by their faith. And this isn't just a statement in the Bible. I, I know this is real because there are people in this room right now who have shown me it's real. It's real. Just a few weeks ago, I was just back there with Josh Buck after a service. Josh Buck, several years ago, dove into an ocean and snapped his spinal cord and is paralyzed. And mo most recently, uh, uh, had, had his, his legs from right here um, chopped off. I remember when, when, when he first got back from his accident and he, he was in his hospital room, because all he could do at that point was pretty much be on his back. He put this huge poster above him with these words painted on it from Corinthians, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Around Christmas time, we had lunch together, long lunch. Even then, I got into his van because he has to travel in his van. I learned how much time and effort it takes just for him to get in and out of a van. We got back in the van after lunch, and he said, Rod, I want to play you my favorite song. <laughs> sure. And he's telling me all the buttons to push, and boom. All of a sudden, the song, it is well with my soul. That's Josh Buck's favorite song. And he said, Rod, verse two is my favorite verse of my favorite song. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. And I'm looking in my rearview mirror at Josh as he's just singing this song with tears coming out of his eyes, all his heart. Faith is a song. And it's this song. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. God calls our hearts to sing. Not just with our lips, but with our hearts and with our lives. The song of faith, in Jesus' name I pray, amen.